Hey Church of the Valley, excited to be with you as we are going to continue in this series uh, in the book of Titus. So I'd encourage you to open God's Word with us and have a notebook and take notes if you feel uh, ready to do so. When we began this crazy journey, originally we, myself and a bunch of others, were a part of a church plant known as Compelled Together, and we merged with Church of the Valley, and now we are COV, or Church of the Valley. And when we started, the whole idea or this theory that I had was that justification was evidenced by our growth in the fruit of the Spirit. That was something that we talked about a lot. That's why we continue to encourage people in the fact that our mission is to help people grow into the likeness of Jesus by being doers of the word for the right reasons. But let me say it another way. Being a Christian is not evidenced by a moment in time but by many moments in time, all working together to paint a picture of one who has been redeemed by God. Those who know Jesus grow in Jesus's likeness. And you can't grow in Jesus's likeness without first knowing Jesus, but you don't know Jesus unless you have grown to look more like him over time. This was something that when I worked in other churches, it seemed to be either misunderstood or not something people really wanted to deal with. So churches often would either be an outreach-focused church or an evangelistic or seeker-sensitive church, and then you'd have other churches that would call themselves either Bible churches or a discipleship church, or maybe they would consider themselves deep churches. And I have no idea where this came from, because nowhere in the book of Acts did churches go, well, we reached them, no need to help them grow and learn more about Christ— or they weren't, there were no churches that would say, well, we don't need to deal with the lost people. We just help people grow that have already committed to Christ. And yet somehow in churches now, we seem to have different flavors. I think what took place was that church leadership have had an emph uh, emphasis on one or the other. And then the church becomes a place where you can only fit in if you focus on one or the other, evangelism or discipleship. We've said for years that we don't want to be satisfied with just being justified. And that doesn't mean at all that we're not serious about seeing dead people come to life through the message and the work of Jesus Christ. But the gospel message isn't just an invitation to be saved, it's an invitation to be transformed. And that's something that we emphasize at Church of the Valley. So what we're going to study today is Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's giving instructions to Titus, a young leader in the church in Crete, a very large island, to equip and teach his people, Titus's people, as a pastor and elder of the church, to equip and teach his people how they ought to act so that the gospel can be an invitation to people towards transformation. And so how you behave is probably more convincing than what one says. We may not be aware of what we communicate by how we live, but Paul is aware that the message of the gospel must be supported by how one lives in light of that message. Not because the message is any less true, but because the recipients have an obvious excuse to not listen if our behavior does not back up our belief. That's why we're talking about backing up the gospel today. Hypocrisy in the church isn't a new thing, and it's not something that just happens in the church. It's a human thing. We tell others what they ought to do while doing the opposite of what we ought to do all of the time. And I'm a hypocrite. I have to confess that I am more of a hypocrite because I know me better than you know me, and I have to live with me. 
I get frustrated with someone on the road while doing the exact same thing to other people as I was just angry at someone else for doing. And our human nature isn't an excuse, but it is a reality. And once we become a Christian, it doesn't mean that any and everything we do wrong just goes away. Your salvation may be amnesty from death, but it isn't immunity from mistake. And so I want to encourage you that you and I, all of us, that have called on the name of Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, we're all in process. If you watched our playlist from last week, you know that we take the resurrection of Jesus very seriously. We believe it happened. We believe because it happened, the Bible, the Word of God, can be true. We believe because the resurrection happened that our sins are forgiven. We are a new creation. We are no longer who we once were. We get to live a new life because of what Christ Jesus has accomplished. But that doesn't mean we daily don't choose to be led by our flesh rather than dominated by the Holy Spirit who resides in us if we've committed our lives to Jesus. Paul has explained to, the, to Titus the type of character that he should be looking for in leaders and elders within the church, the overseers of the church. But Paul laid out a list of characteristics that should not be taken lightly in pursuit in said characteristics are vital to the health of the church based on their leadership. Then two weeks ago, Pastor Mike unpacked the second part of chapter one that spoke to the necessity of opposing false teaching and the responsibility the leadership in the church has to protect the flock from teaching that is not aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to see Paul address the character of the people of the church. Originally, in chapter 1, the first half of that, we talked about the character of the leaders. Now we're going to talk about the members or the people that are committed to the church of God and how the leadership is to instruct them to not discount the gospel by the way that they live. So verse 1 of Titus chapter 2 says this, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. You, however, Titus, leader in the church who will be appointing other leaders within the church, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. You must continue to point out the truth in the scripture. You must defend the truth rather than popular opinion. Paul is contrasting what he had just said about the Cretans and saying in order to drive away fables, you must in turn teach truth. Paul is contrasting what he had just said about the Cretans and saying, in order to drive away fables, you must in turn teach truth. This is something that leaders and teachers and shepherds in the church must be committed to. Otherwise, we discount the truth of God and replace it with the opinions of man. If leaders take liberties knowingly with the truth, people will follow them in the wrong direction. Knowingly is an opportune word here. A, a good friend, a phenomenal teacher of God's word, once said to me about preaching, he said, 20% of what we get up and teach is probably wrong. But sadly, we don't know which 20% it is when we teach. And that makes me think of Pastor Mike. I'm grateful for Mike as he has been someone who has helped me make sure that what I teach is in line with Scripture, within an interpretation that is legitimate not opinion, not what every other person just thinks, but what does scripture actually say? Because it's not just bad teaching that could harm someone. It's the fact that many people take what their leaders say as absolute truth. 
So being careful with one's doctrine is so vital, church, to helping members in the church not be led astray. Leaders can't hear things for other people, but it's one of the biggest blessings and one of the main reasons we as a church constantly do takeaways. Right now, we're doing them on Zoom calls after around 11.30 a.m. on Sundays, but in every service since we got to be a part of Church of the Valley, we've done takeaways where we've asked people to share what they heard in the messages. And we encourage people that are in community groups to share takeaways with one another so we can make sure that what they're hearing is actually what the text says and not just their popular opinion placed on the text. Leaders can't hear things for people, but we can hear what they've heard by having people share what their takeaways are. Now, Paul gives some specific instructions to Titus to give those within the community of believers that are within his care. Here are the instructions. He starts in verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect and self-controlled, and sound in faith and in love and in endurance. Titus, teach the mature men to be temperate, to be restrained, to not indulge in excess. Why do you think Paul begins with this? Because a person who is filled with a substance is not available to be dominated by the Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul's speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So teach those, Paul is saying to Titus. He says, teach those who are mature to be temperate. Teach them to be worthy of full respect. Paul uses this term in other places in his letters regarding deacons and mature women in the church to point out that those who are to be listened to and those who are to be followed must live in an honorable way. Their life should back up their leadership. And Titus Teach the mature men to be self-controlled, he says. Self-controlled, or as we have called it in the past, Christ-controlled, is about you not doing whatever you're urged to do, but to soberly assess situations with the truth of Scripture in accordance with the leading of the Spirit to make decisions not on, based on your own flesh, but through the truth of God's Word. Paul's going to mention self-control a lot here. Because a person who is to be followed and to, be, and to exemplify the gospel is controlled consistently by the Spirit of God, not by their urges. And then he adds that these mature men should be sound in faith of how they live. They should be sound in love with accordance with the great commandment and in patience. Our faith is something that identifies us in eternity. It means we live by our trust in God rather than by our trust in man. And then he adds that mature men should be sound in faith of who and how they live in love with accordance with the great commandment and in patience. Our faith is something that identifies us in eternity. It means we live by our trust in God rather than by our trust in man. But our faith must be solely placed in Christ's hands and his work and not just an add-on to our own beliefs that we got this, that we can figure this out on our own and just act as if Jesus is just some insurance policy. See, if Jesus were a document, faith in Jesus would not be an insurance policy. He would be your passport because Jesus is a Christian's identity. So Paul speaks about our faith and love 
People will know our identity by the way that we love one another. In fact, John, uh, Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. He says, a new command to his disciples that I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our relationship with God is not something that is passive. Our love for God is expressed through our obedience to him and through the way that we love others. And so Paul's instruction to Titus was to train others in love, to model it, to exemplify it, and to give it to others as unto the Lord, and to be sound in faith, in love. Let your faith and love come out of a proper view of who God is. What a waste, church to worship a counterfeit God, never really understanding who God is based on how he has revealed himself through his scripture. So be sound in faith, be sound in love, be sound in endurance, be an example of patience. I know that others told me when I was younger that I needed to be more patient. In fact, I heard this all of the time, but the problem is that patience isn't something that you just are. It's not like you learn Kung Fu like Neo in the Matrix. It's something that is tested and refined through what? It's refined and tested through circumstance. If you pray to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, God will provide opportunities for you to exercise that fruit. If you pray for patience, God provides opportunities to be patient. That's what he does. So maybe your circumstances based on that are because God wants to produce something in you that reflects more of his character and reflects more of his son. This is a hard season. I know, church. I don't think you need to be told that this is difficult, but you do need to be told that it's not a wasted time with the Lord. Not just because the theory that we have more time, which some of us do and some of us don't, so because we have more time, in theory, we'll just give more time to him, but because also we get to see how God is going to grow us in this season. And the way he may be growing us is different than how he's growing you. The way he grows me may be different than how he grows you. Not because I'm any holier than you, I'm not. But because God sees you and I as his children. If we've committed to the gospel of Jesus, just like a parent, he wants to see his children grow and mature. And so he will allow circumstances to be the ones that can produce the fruit in us. And it's based on how we respond to those circumstances. But he, unlike any of us as parents, has more control over the circumstances in which he will use to grow and transform his children into his likeness. I'm grateful now that I'm more patient. I'm grateful for patience. I'm grateful that even though I'm still impatient in comparison to a lot of people around me, I'm significantly more patient than I once was when I was a younger man. And why not give praise to God for his work in me, even if it was through a difficult circumstance. So Titus goes, or Paul goes on speaking to Titus, and he says in verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Next, Paul speaks to Titus about the more mature and seasoned women in the church. He begins with the, the reverent in the way that they live and the way that they behave. When I think of reverent, it's a respectful fear. 
Meaning that if you are reverent, you are remembering that God isn't just in another room as if he doesn't see or hear or know how you're acting or behaving. He's with us. He's with you. And so our job is to live and teach people to live as if he's in the room. Because we respect him, because we adore him, because we worship him, we, like Jesus, live with his will in mind, not ours. So children of God, we are to live reverently unto the Lord. And women, in your maturity, do not be slanderers or addicted to much wine, Paul tells Titus to teach his flock. Paul addresses that women in Crete were gossiping against one another, tearing each other or other people down through their words. And they were not being controlled by God, but they were being controlled by their alcoholic consumption. Talkativeness, I guess, or gossiping was something that could get women in trouble in this context. And as they would over-communicate their opinions and speak badly about other people. Now, that's not always the case. I talk a lot more than my wife does. And she just said amen. And I probably need to watch my mouth even more than she does because of all the words that I use in any given day. But in this culture that Paul was addressing in Crete, there were two vices that women in particular were known for in the culture, which was slander and consuming too much wine. When we overdo it on any substance that impairs our judgment, we then cannot control or we cannot be controlled by the spirit. We cannot control ourselves because we have been chosen or we have chosen to be led by our urges. And that's what the Bible addresses here. Not to stay away from alcohol, that's not what this text says, but to not be given to it as your master and Lord. And he says at the end of this, teach what is good. If your example is one that others can't follow, then you cannot teach what is good because you cannot back up your words with your actions. In verse 4 he says, then urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. So now Paul goes on with what can be taught if these mature women are adhering to being a good example. They can then urge younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Now, a lot of times we take what is said and we create arguments from silence. Paul wasn't saying that those who are older or are more mature should not love their husbands and children, nor the main reason that more mature people should do things so they will have authority to tell younger women what's up. Paul is communicating that it's not just so we'll be good witnesses, but that we can be good developers of other people as well. Discipleship, something we talk a lot about at Church of the Valley, is something that is at the forefront of the unfinished work of Jesus Christ. See, his finished work that you and I would know that we could be in right relationship with God because of the accomplishment of his son living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we should have died, and physically rising from the dead. That's the finished work of Jesus, but the unfinished work of Christ. The reason he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell in his people was that God would use you and I to make disciples. Use you and I to make disciplined pupils of all nations and generations to know and grow in Jesus Christ. So it's one thing to live by the way the scripture says we should, but it's incomplete if we keep all of that to ourselves. If we don't influence, if we do not equip, if we do not teach others to do the same with lives that back up 
our message. But to love their husbands and children, Paul is talking about, that doesn't really seem like a duty, does it? And yet Paul addresses it because a mother's and a wife's love is special. And it's one that requires effort, even if they make it seem like it doesn't. I know it's not just moms, and I don't want to discriminate, but moms in a lot of contexts are taking up most of the workload, if you will, as we have children that are young and older children in our homes. Moms are taking up much of the workload for the schooling of our kids and keeping the household sane. And again, I know it's, it, this isn't the case everywhere. And dads, if you're doing this, great. But I'm grateful for you, you moms who are being loving to your children, that are caring for your children by checking their work and checking in on them as they're doing school or just keeping them occupied for hours upon hours on end. But I also pray and hope that this season of being home primarily with the entire family that moms, if you are married and quarantined with your husbands, I pray that your relationship with your husband, with one another is being strengthened. Not just because they may be sharing the workload with the kids, but because your marriage is a reflection of the gospel. So the elder women or the more mature women can urge the less mature women. Let me, let me speak to something before we move on to the next verse that I think sometimes we misinterpret when we read God's word. I'm using the word like mature because I think that some people believe that only older women can invest in younger women and only older men can invest in younger men. And sometimes experience, or a lot of the time, experience is a very, very helpful thing when an older person has been through something and can, from experience, share their perspective. But just because your manufacture date was earlier than someone else's, doesn't mean that you have more mileage. Mileage doesn't accumulate when you're being towed on the back of a flatbed. And I've known many, many, many people who would say that they were a Christian most of their life, but really didn't obey until possibly lately. And maturity progresses through obedience, not passive acknowledgement. So if someone is older than you, they may be a fantastic mentor and discipler, but check their mileage, not their model year. I'm in my late 30s, or as my kids like to say, you're 40, even though I'm not actually 40 yet. And we have two elders currently that are within our elder board that are in their early 50s. And then we have a bunch of mid to late 30-year-old elders. That's the shepherding elder board of our church. Those were the men that we believe that God was leading and appointing in our congregation through maturity and character, not through age, but through experience of obeying the word of God. So guess what? Even if you're younger than someone, you may be able to invest in them. You may be able to teach them something. It blows my mind, church, that I get to equip our church that I get to teach, that I get to, to speak into different things and, and help admonish and encourage our body to engage with Jesus Christ. I still consider myself young, or at least immature in a lot of ways. And yet I need to remember, it's about obedience through faith, manifesting itself in love and patience being produced in me 
that quantifies maturity. Let me say that again. It's about obedience through faith manifesting itself in love and patience, which is produced in me that quantifies my maturity. So Paul says the more mature can urge the less mature to, to love their husbands and children. And then verse 5, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Wow. If you just read that text without any context or understanding of what Paul is addressing, it's really easy to listen to what he just said and hear it as a pretty chauvinistic type of thing, right? Be busy at home while you're subject to your husbands. That may be all that you've heard. That may be all you hear if you turn off this video right now. But I want to speak to this. He says first to be self-controlled and pure. Once again, Paul is telling Titus to be self-controlled. He says in verse 2, now here in verse 5, and then he's going to say them again in verse 6, to be self-controlled. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit. Self-control is not something you do, but it is something that is done through the Spirit as you respond to circumstances. Self-control is not something you do, but it is done to you through the Spirit as you respond to circumstances. And Paul says that the less mature should be taught to be self-controlled and pure. These are not bad things, are they? Do you hear these things about being self-controlled and pure and go, oh, I wouldn't ever want to be that. I know being out of control seems great until the consequences come due. But to be self-controlled and pure are to be like Christ. Do you see where I'm going with this? To be busy at home? Take a breath. Because I know that those who are less seasoned in the Lord, I know that you may hear this a certain way. We may forget that Paul is pointing out that all he is saying is so that we can be a testimony of Christ that will not be discounted. So when he says busy at home, it coincides with his urging of the less mature women to be taught to love their husbands and their children. Not because that is a duty as much as it is in line with obeying God regarding the family unit. So when he says busy at home, he is handing the function of the spiritual well-being of the home to the wife and to the mother. Husbands, you will be held accountable by the Lord Jesus Christ for how you led, loved, and served your household. But Paul is addressing not the responsibility, but the function of caring for the home in the day-to-day. -day. And by home, I don't mean countertops and carpet. I mean the family unit the people within the family. Some have taken this to say that wives and mothers have to stay at home in order to fulfill this, but that is some chauvinistic stuff right there that is religious misunderstanding completely of what Paul is saying. If you are a woman who chooses to work outside of the home, or you have to work outside of the home to make ends meet because you live in the Bay Area, God bless you. Thank you. You and your husband were created equally, just with different responsibilities. And you still have a responsibility to love your family well, if you work outside the home or if you don't. Just like a husband of a Christian family has the responsibility to lead, love, and care for his family.
Your circumstances are to grow you more into the likeness of Jesus while stewarding the responsibilities that the Lord has entrusted you. So he goes on and he says, be kind, to be caring for others, to be subject to their husbands. He doesn't say subject to any husbands. This doesn't mean women have to be subject to any man, but to their husbands. And our being subject is not about a husband's authority or about a husband being worth any more than a wife, but it's about submission to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says it this way. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, that sounds great. Then verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. It's about submission to Christ, church. Not to how good or bad your husband leads, because if we're honest, most of us husbands are not great at leading, me included. Christ is the perfect leader, but rarely do we think about that when our circumstances are difficult or they're not ideal. We either think that God is doing something wrong or we disregard him completely and forget that God is in the room, that he knows what we're going through, and he might just be gifting us the circumstance that we're going through to grow us. We were having a discussion around the dinner table about something that didn't really matter this week, probably about who could use screens and when they could use screens. And the kids were arguing, and, and they were basically arguing about whose call was it, mom or dad, to tell them when they had to put their screens away. And then the argument was who had the authority to choose. And as Evie, who read the scripture, walked into the kitchen, she had her back to us, and as one of the other kids asked, but who's in charge here? Evie yells out, Jesus! Listen, Jesus is in charge of every household that calls on the name of the Lord. And he has given us roles and responsibilities within the family unit to walk in. But a lot of us assume God's way is wrong. Because of some circumstance we've seen, maybe we've been a part of in the past, or because someone exploited a situation, rather than trusting him at his word. But what does the word say? Why does Paul take what many people misinterpret as chauvinism? Well, Paul says this because he says it so that, at the end of the verse, he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. No one will slander or blaspheme the word of God. How we behave and obey the word of God is a direct reflection of our belief in God and his authority over us. That's so important, I'm going to say it twice. How we behave and obey the word of God is a direct reflection of our belief in God and his authority over us. Last week, we spoke of the resurrection. I really enjoyed pointing us back to the facts of the resurrection. I think many, many, many people passively believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But maybe they don't look at the evidence for themselves. To have an educated belief that the resurrection is factual and historical. So we believe it. Why? Because we're told to believe it. But if the resurrection truly happened, we must believe the words of God found in Scripture. 
And when many of us want to argue or fight against what is written, I'd contend we don't really believe that God is alive. We don't really believe God is present. We don't really believe God's in the room. We don't really believe that God's in charge. Ever since the garden, where Adam and Eve took God's word and changed what he said and disobeyed what he said, we have chosen to create our own way of doing things rather than believing and trusting how God said that it should be. So when Paul says, so others won't malign the word of God, he's pointing that our example becomes the testimony. If we really believe the Bible and God's way of doing things are true or not. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. There it is again, self-control. Once again, self-control. It also can be translated to sober-minded, to not be out of control. Paul uses similarly, or in other translations, likewise. Less mature men who have not yet understood self-control need to be taught it. Not just what it is, but why it is so loud in our testimonies of God and his authority over our lives. Verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Why is, so, why is Paul so adamant and redundant regarding our example for all sorts of men and women within the church. Because our example detracts or affirms the gospel message. Our example detracts or affirms the gospel message. And if God saved us as trophies of grace, not because we deserved it, but because God gave us what we didn't deserve in Jesus Christ, if God gave us his spirit so we could continue Jesus' unfinished work of making disciples of all nations, then how we conduct our lives brings a testimony of either positivity or negativity towards the gospel. We've all met people who claim that they're Christians and yet their lives don't back up their message. And I know for a fact, I get super frustrated when someone claims that they love the same Jesus that I love, but speak about him in a way that isn't biblical, and they don't treat others in a way that a person who is redeemed by God ought to treat others. But I'm the biggest hypocrite, hear me, regarding this. I just hide it better than most. And I know I do this too. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it this way, By their fruit you will recognize them. He was speaking of false prophets, but it, it applies to where people are at with the Lord. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Your fruit is not how many people you influence or tell about Jesus or how many people like you. Your fruit is a work of the Spirit of God conforming you more into the image and likeness of Christ. So if you're growing... You're growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're progressing in these things, 
usually produced in us through circumstances and through opportunities that the Lord provides, then we can look to that fruit as confirmation of the message that Jesus is our Lord in our lives, that he is Uh, that he has offered salvation to a world that needs him, but we know that we are his, not because we prayed some prayer, not because we had some emotional response to something, but because we've grown to look more like him in the fruit of the Spirit. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We love others, Christians, because Christ loved us and set the example of those of us who are God's children that we would walk in love and that we would love, or I'm sorry, that our love would be the identifying mark of us in our Christianity. And that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would progress as testimonies to God's grace so that people would be without excuse to hear and believe the word of God. Here's what he says in verse 7 and 8 of Titus 2. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then lastly, Paul, who has pointed out how important our example is, now says that our teaching should also show something. Integrity. Our teaching should show integrity, a purity to our message. Our teaching, as Paul has been pointing out, should be backed up by the life that we live. A seriousness and a soundness of speech. We should not be flippant When it comes to the gospel, our doctrine should be reverent towards God and should be a warning towards man. Our doctrine should be be reverent towards God and should be a warning towards man. And there is nothing that you and I can do that saves us. There is nothing that you or I can do in our own strength that produces the fruit of the Spirit. God does the heavy lifting while we abide and submit to his authority in our lives. And he produces salvation, and he produces sanctification in us as we let go of the fighting against him and allow God to take over. Why? So that those who oppose the message, those who are yet to believe, have an opportunity to believe. So that those who fight against Christianity hear about it from someone that isn't the stereotypical, hypocritical Christian that they're used to seeing, but that your message and your life together create a compelling case that can be heard about the gospel. And then, when they see Jesus for who he is, they may be ashamed. They may finally respect God's authority. They may repent after realizing that they were fighting against the God who loves them and sent his son to die in their place and rise from the dead. So church family, I've seen how God is using our shelter in place to connect with one another, to communicate in ways that we never thought we were going to communicate with one another before. But I hope that we use this time to point out the truth of the gospel And how hope in Jesus is not an ethereal concept, but it's a beautiful invitation to be God's child and for God to be our Father. I want to encourage you. 
Keep on trusting Christ in this season. And spend time with him. And see your circumstances not as roadblocks, but as opportunities for spiritual growth. Before we respond in worship, I want to give you the opportunity to give if you feel led to do that. If this is a way that you worship God by giving your offering back to the Lord. And so I know that finances are weird right now. I know that people are being furloughed and they're losing jobs. And so if you are in a place where you feel led to give, it is an act of worship and you're a part of Church of the Valley, we encourage you to do so. You can go to the link on the website. We should have the link on the screen. Or you can mail in a check to the church at 400 North Winchester Boulevard, Santa Clara, 95050. But we don't do this because we're fearful that the economy is going to fall apart or we don't tell you to give just so you will have to give something out of your pocket. We encourage you to give because it's an act of worship. And so if you feel led to do so, we'd encourage you to do so. Love you guys.